Greetings, friends and brothers. This is Dr. Bob Teals of Continuing Church of God, and I want to talk to you about the last great day. The last great day is known as the eighth day of the feast because it comes after the seven-day feast of tabernacles. I talked to a Jewish guy today and uh, double-checked what they call it, and they call it uh, Shemini Azarat. And I also got an email from the Temple Institute about this, but they don't understand it the same way we do. They don't have the full depth of this. And this day is actually one of the most glorious times. This is a very glorious time because it pictures a time when all will have an opportunity for salvation. In Romans 2 verse 11 it says there's no partiality with God. But growing up in a Catholic environment, Roman Catholic environment, it seems like there was kind of a partiality. You were born into a Catholic family, you were you know, baptized when you were a baby and probably confirmed when you were 10. But if you weren't born in a Catholic family, uh, I mean, you could convert, but it seemed like all the Catholics I knew were either Catholics by birth or Catholics by marriage. Somebody wanted to marry somebody who was a Catholic, one of my grandparents did that and had to convert over to uh, Roman Catholicism. But that seems to be kind of a partiality, okay? God only calls people who are interested in men or women, uh, who are Catholic, and only in Catholic countries, right? Or countries that have a lot of Catholics in them. But there is no partiality with God. I say, okay, well, I'm not Roman Catholic. I'm Eastern Orthodox. Okay, well, same basic thing. If you grow up in an Eastern Orthodox country or an Eastern Orthodox family, you're more likely to be Eastern Orthodox. And same thing with others. Now with Protestants, Protestants teach that uh, if you hear it, hear the message and you respond, you can be saved. But if you don't hear the message and you can't respond, well, that's too bad. That's just the way it goes. And I've, yes, I've, I've brought race into this in the past. It just turns out that most Protestants happen to be of uh, European heritage. Not all, but many, most. And everybody else, just too bad. And that's just how it goes. So that would suggest to me that there is a partiality with God, but there is no partiality with God. And let's go to Acts chapter 10. I quoted Romans 2.11 about partiality, but Peter, the Apostle Peter, actually thought God was partial. And I won't read the preceding scriptures, but I'll just basically tell the story. Peter was in this place uh, called Joppa. As a matter of fact, I've been to the house that supposedly Peter uh, had saw this vision. Had this vision of a sheet and there's animals on it. And he hears a voice, rise, kill, and eat. He says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And the response is, whatever God cleansed, don't call common. And so this goes through. Some people have misinterpreted this to mean that people were supposed to therefore eat unclean animals. Uh, Peter said he didn't know what it meant. And finally, this is where we find out what Peter thought it meant. Peter understood what it meant. And I will also comment that uh, people in Jerusalem, by the way, in Judea, did not think they were supposed to eat unclean meat. And even according to the Roman Catholic Church, they didn't declare it food, if you will, until 180 AD, which is way after this happened. Anyway, we hear this, then verse 34 of Acts chapter 10, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth I perceive God shows no partiality. Because being raised as, as a Jew, the chosen people, they thought, okay, God's partial. This, okay. Finally it's starting to click to Peter, no, God's got this plan and it's not partial. 
Now you would think when Jesus is around, and he said in Matthew 24, 14, go therefore in all the world, I'm sorry, that's Matthew 28, 19, 20, I'll do that one. Go ye therefore in all the world, preach the gospel to everyone, and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, that was telling us to go everywhere. Or Matthew 24, 14, when they asked, the disciples asked Jesus when the end was going to come. He said, well, this gospel kingdom will be preached to the world's witness and the end will come. Then the end will come. And I guess Peter didn't connect those as being related to all this stuff. So don't be ashamed, if you will, if you read the New Testament and some things you don't get the first time or two. I mean, Peter was with Jesus. And he still didn't get it until after all this stuff happens. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. It said later Romans, Paul specifically wrote, there's no partiality with God. All right? But Peter at first didn't get it. But every nation who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Okay, so God had a plan to include people who were not just Jews. And going down to verse 45, and those of the circumcision, that means the Jews, basically, who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. I didn't read all the part of the story. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, just like in Acts chapter 2. They're all shocked. Okay? So they, the early Christians at first, didn't get it. They did not understand God's plan of salvation. It, didn't, it wasn't clear enough to them. God had to do some relatively miraculous things, or actually miraculous things, for people to finally get it. Wow! This is really what was supposed to happen. I mentioned Matthew 24, 14, and Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10, talks about people are going to be saved from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. So it's not limited to any particular ethnic group or geographic location. You may want to go to Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read starting verse 28. Paul notes, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Notice that Paul notes that you're supposed to be a Jew inwardly. The New Testament actually refers to Christians as Jews more often than it uses the term Christian. And I mention this because Emperor Constantine, after his Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, went out and said, we should have nothing in common with that detestable Jewish crowd because we've learned from our Savior a different way. Well, actually, Jesus was a Jew, and we learned many things from the Savior, but we didn't learn that we should have nothing to do with people who are Jewish or be anything to do with the so-called detestable Jewish crowd, or why, where did we get to the apostles? They were part of that crowd before. Typically, and we'll do this today, typically on the last great day in the Church of God, we'll go to Ezekiel chapter 37. And... We recently did a sermon series on a new booklet we have called Universal of Offer, Universal Offer of Salvation, 
where we went through hundreds of scriptures that explained God's plan of salvation and how God actually has no partiality and how God has a plan to call some in this age and others in the age to come. Unfortunately, uh, the Roman Catholics and the Protestants don't seem to accept that. But interestingly, the group that calls itself the Orthodox Catholic Church teaches that this is a possibility and that this could happen on the, the time of the Great White Throne Judgment, which is what is pictured by the last great day, which is this holy day we're talking about today. I mention that because for some who will consider this a weird occultic idea, while we have many differences from the Eastern Orthodox, uh, they are not considered to be weird or cultic, generally speaking, by, by most Protestants. <laughs> so that's something they might want to consider. And certainly they're not considered weird or cultic by the Roman Catholics. There's some differences that they have, but they don't consider them that unusual. Anyway, having said that, in Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 1, we read about dry bones. It says, The hand of the Lord, or Yahweh, came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley that was full of bones. Now, of course, you see bones, you realize there was something that was alive because that's where the bones come from. Verse 2, Then he, this is God, caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. Okay. These bones had not been partakers of the living waters that you can read about in Jeremiah 2.13, Isaiah 44.3, uh, John 4.10. And by the way, the scriptures that I'm going through are available in that book that I mentioned before, Universal Offer of Salvation. It's free. You can go to www.ccog.org, go to the literature tab, and click on books and booklets, and you'll find it. And so if I go through some scriptures that are a little... A little quickly, or you don't scribble them down your notes, or something you want to look up, uh, you can find them in this particular book. Anyway, then God asked Ezekiel a question. Verse 3 says, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel gives a really clever answer. He said, So I answered, Oh Lord God, you know. Ezekiel, maybe Ezekiel went through this thought process. If I say no, God's going to say, I can do anything. If I say yes, God's going to say, it's okay to make it happen. I don't know what God's going to say. Because these, you know, these are very dry bones, okay? It's not like they got life left in them. <laughs> he says, Lord God, you know. So, Ezekiel didn't respond with faulty human reasoning. Because faulty human reasoning would say, no, it can't be. It's just, it's just not it. And he widely deferred to God, to God. Unlike many today, Ezekiel didn't conclude that the ancient bones could not be brought back to life. Anyway, continuing in Ezekiel 37, starting verse 4. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the eternal Yahweh the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord, or I am the Eternal. So 
I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered over them over, but there was no breath in them. Verse 9, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. Verse 10, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them. And they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. And that is actually what most of the churches teach, is that the, you're cut off, you didn't accept whatever version of Jesus or the gospel or whatever it is that they teach, and it's all done. That's what most of them teach. And you're cut off, it's too bad. Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you from your graves. Well, when people are brought from their graves, they're going to be surprised because some of them will have been brought up believing they're going to be frying. Others are going to be come up thinking they're supposed to be with a harp or something. Others are going to come up just hoping that they're going to have something to look at for eternity called the beatific vision. Anyway, but verse 14 says, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it, says the Lord. These are people who are dead. They falsely believed that uh, they were lost, they've got no hope, that they, you know, they're completely cut off. They're going to be resurrected. They will have hope and they're going to know there really is a God and who that God is. Since these people claim that their hope is cut off, they're clearly not converted. Now, there might be some who may have thought that they were, but they weren't sure. And those who were, cons there is hope, obviously, now for those who are considered to be lost. Now, I want to read something in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2, related to Elisha. And this is not something I've ever heard uh, spoken about on last, in a last great day uh, message, although I think I've mentioned it in a sermon or two. Second Kings chapter 2, starting verse 19, says, Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please notice, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground's barren. Verse uh, 20, And he said, this is Elisha said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there, which is the opposite of what you think you do to try to make water better for the ground. As a matter of fact, where we live, there's a lot of uh, irrigation because it doesn't rain a lot in, in California. It's unlike certain parts of the world uh, where weather is relative, is pretty unpredictable. Ours is relatively predictable. It's not like we can't be surprised, 
But generally speaking, it doesn't usually rain between May and uh, August. Sometimes in September it might sprinkle a little bit. You can pretty much count on it not raining. But they're growing crops all the time and they're putting uh, irrigated water on it. The problem with the irrigated water, by the way, is that it, it contains salt. Because uh, the, most of the water where we're at currently, they, they pump it up. Well, we're pretty close to the ocean. <laughs> so it kind of mixes with the ocean a little bit. And it makes the water have some salt in it. Now, not so much that you can't live on it, but I was talking to a, a farm manager and he told me that uh, a couple of years back when we had a bunch of rain for a while, he said, the rain cleared out the land because we have all the salt in the, land, in the soil, but the rainwater doesn't have any salt in it. And it comes down and it, clean, it purges it. So he said the crops are greener, they look different, and they grow better. And for those of you who are unaware, basically how the rain cycle works is that when water evaporates, only thing goes up there is the water. Okay, salt doesn't go up. <laughs> okay, go up in the clouds. Now it's true when it comes down, whatever dirt might be in the, the pollution might be in the air, that comes down with it too. But there's generally speaking no salt. And so it, it purges it and cleans it. So you would think this is an odd thing God had them do, is to put salt in it to make the barren land better. Because if you want to destroy land, just put a, just spray a straight salt water on it. And you're not going to be able, enough of it, you're not going to be able to grow crops. So God doesn't always do things the way people think they're going, he's going to do it. In this particular instance, he did it the opposite. Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water, and there'll be more, no more death or barrenness. But putting salt in it, which is the opposite of what you'd think for barrenness. So the water remained healed to this day according to the word which Elisha spoke. Now I believe this is an anti-type, that's A-N-T-E type, of what's going to happen in the future. I know there was a miracle back then. In Elisha's day, people thought the water was without hope. But God had a plan. In the future, humans are no longer going to have to deal with death and barrenness because Jesus said that living waters would come. And now let's go there to John chapter 7. I realize this is typically read this day, but that's okay. I could go through scriptures that people typically read on this day as well. I've just never heard it tied into 2 Kings 2, uh, 19 or so in the other groups I attended with. John 37 verse, John 7 verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He believes me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him uh, would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Christ was not, Jesus was not yet glorified. But we see living waters, and living waters are going to come on the earth. I'm going to read from Revelation 21.6. You don't have to go there because I'm only going to read this one passage there. It says, And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. Now that has not happened in this age. In this age, only those God who's calling have access. But since there is no partiality with God, 
there will be an opportunity for everyone else. And that's something that the Greco-Roman Protestant faiths generally don't fully grasp. Even though the Orthodox think it's a possibility, they're not quite sure how. And part of the reason I believe is because they do not keep God's holy days as well as certain other uh, commands. But we do, and we understand as we keep this, how it pictures a part of God's plan of salvation. Now I want to go to uh, Jeremiah 23. Now, in Ezekiel 37, it talked about flesh and meat added to bones. And this resurrection, if you will, is a type of reincarnation. And I know it's a term people have shied away from. But we also want to reach people who come from backgrounds that teach some version of this, explain to them. It isn't there's no type of reincarnation because the Bible clearly teaches a reincarnation. That's what Ezekiel 37 is talking about. But the Bible does not teach you come back as an animal or, or an insect or whatever it is based on how good or bad you were in this, this life. It doesn't teach that. But it does teach this, that people will have another opportunity. And what you've learned or gained in this life will assist you, hopefully, in uh, being converted in the, in the age to come if you're not being called in this, in this type, this time. Well, anyway, I want to go to Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he's called the Eternal, or the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, or the Eternal, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, you brought up the children of Egypt, excuse me, children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they will dwell in their own land. And I want to go to Amos, the book of Amos, chapter 9, starting in verse 11. Now we heard about David in Jeremiah, now we're going to hear about David in Amos. Amos 9, verse 11. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages, and I will raise its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by thy name, says the Lord, who does this thing. So this is something for the future. This is a prophecy for the future. There are so many prophecies in the Bible about God's plan of salvation that people have overlooked or discounted. I've read from, let's pick on Protestants for a second, Protestant scholars say all oh, these various things were always fulfilled. And you ask, well, how? What was fulfilled in Jesus? They're not particularly specific. Uh, and many of these were not fulfilled in Jesus, and they weren't fulfilled, have not been fulfilled yet. This is a future time coming. What happened with David in his tabernacle, that, that, that was not restored, at least not physically, when David was, when Jesus was here. Okay, to use that as another example of why that's not correct. Speaking of David, let's go back to Ezekiel 37. Now this time, I'll go to verse 24. 
because you've got to understand, or everybody would at least agree that the following has not happened. Sometimes people want to allegorize or spiritualize everything away, but this specifically says, starting verse 24 of Ezekiel 37, David, my servant, will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. They'll also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. This is talking about people are physically going to do something. They will dwell in the land which I've given to Jacob, my servant, where your father's dwelt, and they'll dwell, dwell there. They, their children, their children's children forever, and, and David, my servant, my servant David, shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I'll make a covenant of peace with them, be an everlasting covenant. I will establish with them and multiply them. I'll set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle will be with them. Indeed, I will be their guide, and they'll be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. God has a plan that involves teaching the nations his statutes. Surely this has not happened yet. It's surely for the future. It's going to be a time of restoration for all, including resurrected King David. You don't have to go there. We're going to read Psalm 31, verse 9. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust you in the presence of the sons of men. Now, the psalmist is saying here that God's goodness is great because that goodness involves what's laid up for those who trust Him. But this is not limited to those who trust Him in this age. The psalms teach that even those who've gone after falsehoods instead should put their trust in the Lord, and that's from Psalm 45, Genesis 4, verse 5. Now, I want to go, if you stayed in Ezekiel, we'll go to Ezekiel 39. If you didn't stay in Ezekiel, I still plan on going to Ezekiel 39, <laughs> starting in verse 11. Ezekiel 39. Oh, I said 11, I meant 21. I'm sorry. I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. This clearly has not happened yet. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the land for their, of their enemies and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgression, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I'll bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. This has not happened yet. So having some of the Jews go back to this little land by Palestine called Israel, this has not been fulfilled. After they've been born their shame and all their unfaithfulness, which they're unfaithful to me, when they dwell safely in their own land and no one made them afraid. The Jews are outnumbered massively by Arabs and others, Muslims in that area, who do not want them to be there, and they are afraid. Now, they don't come across trembling or something. They build up their arms and they're hoping they can trust in those, but they're afraid. They don't want to have to fight these people and be in all this stuff. This has not been fulfilled yet. It will be fulfilled in the future. 
Verse 27, when I brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, that I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they will know that I am the eternal Yahweh their God, who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their own land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, said the Lord. Now I want to go to the New Testament, to uh, Luke chapter 13. I'd like to start in verse 34. This is Jesus speaking. Luke 13, starting verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are set to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, why would the condemned, because there were people at the time Jesus obviously didn't accept him, they had him killed, why would the condemned later cry out, blessed he who comes to the Lord, if they had no opportunity? There would be no reason why would they do that. They must have a future opportunity. And that was not fulfilled in this entirely with uh, Jesus' triumphal entry in uh, Jerusalem in Luke 19, 37-38 when he was outside the city of Jerusalem. Now let's go to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 10. And read some things here. Zechariah 9, verse 10. God says, I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live and gather, live together with their children, and they shall return. And I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up. And the, then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in my name. God is including those who are dead in this passage, and these people were going to be resurrected. You don't have to go there, but we're going to read something from Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 18. It says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Notice that all the nations of the earth are to be blessed. This obviously must include Gentile nations and tribes who have long since died out. And since many of them never even heard of the name of Jesus, their blessing must be in the future. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 29, starting verse 1. God is not calling everyone in this age and has not allowed everyone to see it in this age, nor has he allowed actually all the Israelites to see it. Now, a lot of people thought, no, the Israelites are the chosen people, so they got to see everything. Well, let's see what God inspired 
Moses to write Deuteronomy 29, starting verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Eternal commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them at Oreb. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Eternal did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. Verse 3. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and great wonders. Yet, the Eternal has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. Okay? God was not calling all of physical Israel back then or he would have given them a heart to perceive, eyes to see, and ears to hear. But he has a plan for them. There is no partiality with God. God has a plan to offer salvation to people when it's best for them. For some people, it's best to be called in this age. For others, it would be best to be called in the age to come. You say, well, that doesn't make sense to you. Well, it doesn't have to make sense to us. The Bible says God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than ours as the east is from the west. And if you take a point and take a ray both directions, the east and the west become infinitely far away because it never ends. I don't know how far away that could be because you can't measure it because it's, it's immeasurable. And that's what God's trying to say. His ways are so much higher than ours. In a, you don't have to go there, but in Isaiah 45, verse 25, it says, In the eternal, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Well, they weren't even able to see. Moses said that. They didn't have the ability to see then, so obviously it's a time coming later. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 9. The reason I had you go over this is that people sometimes don't understand God's time frame and think God's got to do it on their time frame or some version of their time frame. But in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason God doesn't call everybody now is that He's not slack concerning His promise to offer salvation to everybody. It's just that for some people it's better. And why does He do this? He's long-suffering toward us, but if He doesn't want people to perish, He wants all to come to repentance. And all would not come to repentance in this age, and God knew that. <laughs> Go to Romans 2. Romans 2, verse 4, we see the Apostle Paul concurred, because he wrote, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Okay, well, the goodness of God will lead others to repentance also because there's no partiality with God. Patience is part of the, of the plan of salvation. And actually, uh, in Romans 15, 5, you don't have to go there, Paul even calls him the God of patience. Yet, many people don't seem to think that God is long-suffering enough or patient enough to last until the age to come or another age to come. Many people basically want to put God on their timetable. 
Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Read something else from the Apostle Paul. Starting in verse 1. Therefore I exhort, exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And by the way, this is what you might call your civic duty. Various ones might tell you what they think your civic duty is. The Bible has told you right here what your civic duty, a major part of your civic duty as a Christian is. By the way, this is not some, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you you do not have to pay taxes, but as far as your civic duty, one of the things is you're supposed to pray for the leaders. Verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Notice that God desires that all are to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You might think you had a better plan than God. Could call everybody now. But God had a better plan. And I wasn't going to go into this. And this part, by the way, is not in the Universal Offer of Salvation book. So I'll just go off my top of my head here. You say, no, it would have been so much better. It would have been perfect if what happened instead of what we see is that God would have been there the whole time in the Garden of Eden and put guards in front of the uh, knowledge of the tree of good and evil. So Adam and Eve couldn't have gone over there and done that. And they would have reproduced, had children, and everybody would see God all the time and talk to God all the time. And everybody would have done the right thing. That is how I think some think God should have done his plan. But they seem to forget that God did something kind of close to that when God made the angels. Now, some people think people sin because uh, they're poor or some physical need or the other, some less of the flesh or whatever. Well, angels don't need any of that stuff. Yet, Lucifer rebelled. He had all the knowledge. Okay, he knew there was a God. While I think the existence of God is easily provable, and we have a booklet called Is God's Existence Logical, which I believe clearly proves it. It's at the ccg.org website. Didn't have to prove that to Lucifer. The angels, they knew God existed. They knew he had all this power. But they rebelled anyway. So don't think that if you change God's plan, so everybody would know for sure there was a God, that everybody would have listened and people would not have rebelled. God's plan was to maximize the, the amount of people who would be saved. And all you have to do is look at the record of Satan and his demons to realize, nope, if you know it all, that's not enough to prevent it. So, if God is all-knowing, which he is, God is all-wise, which he is, if God is love, which he is, Certainly, God is wise enough to come up with a plan of salvation that works. But growing up as a Roman Catholic, and then later, uh, for a short time, considering myself Protestant, those faiths basically have a plan of salvation where most people don't get saved, and most fry forever and ever. Some, according to Protestants, whether you heard anything or not, some Catholics, some Catholics, this is a minority position with the Catholicism, but it's becoming popular now, 
Uh, some Catholics think, well, if you led a good life, it was still okay, uh, you'll, you'll be saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says there's one name under heaven by which you can be saved, which is Jesus. But basically, the historical position of the Roman Catholic Church is most people are going to fry forever, and the historical position of the Protestant churches is most people are going to fry forever. Apparently, God did not come up with a plan that works for too many. Uh, one, one Catholic writer wrote something like, scarcely one out of every 10,000 is going to be saved. Uh, which would make it even less. Uh, according to Calvinism, I think it's about 2% would get saved. Uh, according to liberal Protestantism, maybe 30% of people will be saved. Uh, okay, but, uh, and, all the, and there's numbers in between, but basically they don't believe God was apparently wise enough to come up with a plan that would work. But he does have a plan that works. And God's plan and desire is that all will be saved. Now let's go to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 5, verse 24. The Bible talks about the first fruits. Those are those who are called now. And they're part of an earlier reign. But there's a, a later reign or latter reign that's going to come. And we can see this in Jeremiah 5, verse 24. Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain, both the former and latter rain, in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. This is not simply a reference to growing crops. I'm going to read Hosea 6, verse 3. You don't have to go there, but this is, I'm going to go there and into one more scripture somewhere else in the Old Testament. Hosea 6, verse 3 says, Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain on the earth. Similar concept. Now I want to go to Joel 2:23. Again, you don't need to go there. It's just one verse I'm going to read. This time, I'm going to read it from the uh, English Standard Version, as opposed to the New King James, which is what I'm normally reading. Joel 2, verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. Now, you say, well, that's all Old Testament. Let's go to James 5, verse 7, and read something from the New Testament. James 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. There's that patient word again. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth? waiting patiently for it till it receives the early and latter rain. We see we're to be patient for God, as far as God's plan. He has a plan to call some now, and he's got a plan to call others later. I'd like to read something from the first issue of the Hope of Israel. It was published by a group that later became known as Church of God Adventists, and then they become known as Church of God Seventh Day. And this is from 
Book of Israel, Volume 1, August 10, 1863. So the churches of God in Wisconsin, looking for the appearing of the Lord, and the same class of churches in Iowa, and some of the same faith in Illinois, have taken their stand upon the word of God contained in the prophets of Jehovah, the apostles of Christ, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, admitting no other authority for their faith, practice, and discipline, yet are we are waiting for the latter reign spoken of by Joel 2.23, which is what I quoted here just a moment ago. If, as Peter said, a day of Pentecost, that which then was seen in the apostles was fulfilling the prophecy of Joel, surely it was but for the former reign. So what he's saying is, what this article was saying, this is uh, this less, guy's name was Davison. I'm not sure what his first name is. His first initial was S. He was saying, okay, the day of Pentecost pictures the former reign. Those who are being called in this age. He didn't word that exactly, but that seems to be what he's saying because he said, surely Pentecost was the former reign and the latter reign is yet to come. He didn't mean the latter reign was coming the day after Pentecost. Okay, because he wrote this in 1863. Attended with wonders in the heavens and in the earth, and a remnant of whom the Lord shall call. Now, in the 20th century, the old worldwide church of God taught this related to God's plan as far as the former and latter reign. Now, this is from the Ambassador College Correspondence Course, number lesson 33, called The Passover, Christ's Sacrifice Begin from 1969. To keep his children constantly in true understanding of his great plan of salvation, Christ, the Lord of the Old Testament, originally took the yearly agricultural season of the harvest in Palestine as a type of spiritual harvest of human beings. In Palestine, there's two annual grain harvests, first produced by the annual rain, which is smaller, the smaller spring harvest, second produced by the latter rain, which comes the main harvest, the much greater fall harvest. The first three festival periods, beginning with Passover, are memorials to the first part of God's plan. They picture only the first fruits of Christ's labor. The last four festivals, which would start with uh, trumpets, feast of trumpets, look forward to the future and how God will reap the latter great fall harvest of billions of people. Now this billions of people harvest will probably be somewhere between 70 billion and 110 billion people. Uh, I'm getting that number from others who've guessed what it is, because I don't really know, but we know it's a lot of people, a lot more than we tend to think. In Lesson 38 from a 1965 correspondence course called the Feast of Tabernacles, they kept changing the courses and lessons, the old Radio Church of God taught the following, Joel 2, the rain spoken of verse 23 is dual. A spiritual as well as physical rain, which produces great physical abundance. God is now giving the former rain of the Holy Spirit moderately, producing a small harvest of individuals. There is to be a correspondingly larger latter rain of the Spirit to produce the greater spiritual harvest, a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and hence of salvation. It's typified and associated with an increased rain in the desert areas. So to compare also Isaiah 44.3 and John 7.37-39. And I did read that earlier. Now, they mentioned Isaiah 44.3, so I will go and read that. For I will pour water out on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. I will pour out, pour my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. Well, the dry bones are going to be raised, 
and have their opportunity their salvation. Now I should comment that those outside the Church of God have an ecumenical view of the latter reign. And if you listen to uh, places like, I guess, Hillsong and what others, a lot, of, a lot of music, they basically have this idea that the latter reign is all the churches are going to get together and sing songs and do whatever it is they want, that they want them to do. Um, and actually one of, one of these, one of their so-called prophets, uh, this is from, uh, let's see which one, Paul Cain says, God is raising a new standard, a new banner, if you will. It's going to radically change the expression, the, the understanding of Christianity in our generation. God's invited us to have a role in establishing new, this new order of Christianity. God is offering this generation something never offered to any other generation. Beware lest old order brethren rob you and steal this hope from you. Okay. Jude 3 says to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But we've got Pentecostals here saying don't let the old stuff keep you from what's coming. Well this Bible specifically warns don't become a part of the unclean, be separate from them, don't become part of mystery Babylon and this is one of the things that they're promoting. And they tie this in with the uh, latter rain and so let me read uh, something else from uh, a Pentecostal source. This is called, an article is called The Latter Rain Revival. Okay. Over 50 years ago, various ones attempted to introduce this latter rain movement into the Pentecostals. A united church will, be, will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now I mention this because every now and then, people who are part of the Church of God will hear some terms they're familiar with, like Feast of Tabernacles. And think, oh, then this must have the truth in it. No, just because they bring up the Feast of Tabernacles doesn't mean it's true. Okay? Anyway, it says, uh, the United Church will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. The prophetic fulfillment of this feast is said to occur prior to the return of Christ. The latter rain prophets claim this will be a second Pentecost since the first was incomplete. So they teach two Pentecosts. The first one somehow was incomplete, but the second one, all the churches are going to get together and it's going to have to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. Since this latter rain, second Pentecost during Tabernacles is suggestive of planetary Pentecost preached by a woman named Barbara Marks Hubbard as, a, as the peaceful alternative Armageddon. So... <laughs> Uh, no, by going the way they want to go, they will lead to Armageddon. Okay, but no, they're trying to say this is an alternative. You imagine we're preaching the truth of God, what the Bible says is going to happen, and there are people are going to go out there and say, oh no, there is an alternative to Armageddon. And that's just to believe in this ecumenical movement and get behind what will end up being the beast and the false prophet. And that's, that's where they're going to end up going with all this. And they've got prophecies to say, no, this is an alternative. Similar when we similarly when we've heard things from uh, various uh, Catholic prophets and uh, Eastern Orthodox prophets, we've heard the same kind of idea where they've said they've got ways to go opposite or different than something that's ever happened before. Now, biblical prophecies are going to be fulfilled. 
It says in Psalm 3, verse 8, that salvation belongs to the Lord. But, you know, some feel that they can bring salvation, or God's going to stop salvation prior, prior to then. Now let's go to Psalm 77, verse 7. Psalm 77, starting in verse 7. We'll see something that's asked at the time. It says, Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has his anger, has he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? Well, the answer to all those questions, the intended answer to all those is no, 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 no. But people act like, nope. If you don't, didn't give your heart to the Lord before you fell over or got hit by that car that you weren't expecting to have happen, it's too bad, so sad, you're out of luck, you get to fry forever. And that is not what the Bible teaches. And that's not what's pictured by this holy day. This day pictures an opportunity, a time of the latter rain, a time where living waters will come and people will have an opportunity for salvation. Yet, there are those out there, Satan has his counterfeits. Satan's counterfeits are out there saying, oh, there's a different way to do this. So now you can see some who are even trying to tie in the Holy Days and Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles with their misunderstanding of this. In uh, let's go to Matthew chapter seven in the, in the New Testament. We're in the, the six thousand year stage of God's plan, where God's calling some in this age, and God will call others in the thousand year millennial reign, which comes afterwards. Now, the millennium is actually pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles which is the day I'm giving this, uh, ended yesterday. The eighth day, the last great day, comes right afterwards. Now God is only calling some now, and Jesus made it clear only some would find the way in this age. In Matthew 7, starting in verse 13, Jesus said to enter by the narrow gate. Now interestingly, today I received an email, and I won't mention what country because I don't want to put this particular person on the spot here, where this person asked various questions like, why don't we keep various uh, non-biblical holy days and where are all the biblical holy days, etc., etc., and said some, some questions about the Trinity and all this kind of thing, and not grasping that really what this means as far as enter by the narrow gate. Now I'm hoping, by the way, with how he responded and all this stuff, that he will, he and those who are with him will grasp this. Because Jesus said, for why is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction? And there will be many who go in by it. Most people will not go the right way in this age. Jesus knew that. And that's why, or part of why, God's plan of salvation includes an age to come, an opportunity which will happen after the second resurrection, at the time of the great white throne judgment, Jesus said, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. There's only few who are going to find it in this age. Now, did God make the way so difficult so people wouldn't be saved? No, this is the same God that says he wants everybody to be saved. That's his plan. It's his desire to save everyone. He wants them saved. 
But Jesus knew that it, was too, it would be too difficult for most, and so only some are being called in this age, and others will be called in the age to come. By the way, if you think you may be called in this age, and you're not sure, we would recommend you go to ccog.org, go under the literature tab, find a book, or a book called uh, Is God Calling You? And also, we have some animations about that too, by the way, they're pretty short, you can find it at the cogwriter.com website, that's www.cogwriter.com website. Yes, I do not have a spell writer. I write it down all the time, but sometimes. I will stutter or stumble. Now I'd like to go to Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 11. And I'm going to read this from a Protestant and a Catholic translation. First was a Protestant one, New King James, which I've been using. It says, the Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each from his, from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. Now I want to read from the New Jerusalem Bible. This is probably one of the more popular translations of the Bible from a Roman Catholic source. Uh, in, in the current time. Yahweh will be fearsome to them, for he will scatter all the gods of the earth, and they will bow down to him, each from his own place, all the islands of the nations. So notice that God has a plan for those who worship pagan gods. So whether you think we should have used a Protestant translation or a Catholic translation, we have that. And perhaps I should have put an Eastern Orthodox translation in there too. Or actually just use a Septuagint, I guess. I'd like to uh, go to Revelation chapter 7. I've referred to this before, but I want to go there. But if you're on your way there, I want to read uh, something from an Islamic source. And this source says, this is for Islam for Christians, the last day, according to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Unlike Jews and Christians, Muslims believe that heaven paradise is accessible to believers from all nations. You say, wait, Jews and Christians believe that, right? Well, as far as the Muslims are concerned, no, you don't. They think their plan includes all nations. Now, they want to do it through warfare and various other means to get them there. But because true Christianity has not been taught on many points, the Muslims have concluded, oh, now the Jews and the Christians, they don't believe in that. It's kind of a European club with some Africans thrown in, maybe an Asian or two or whatever. But in Revelation 7, verse 9, it's very clear. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne for the Lamb. Clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to our Lamb. So we see that though God has a plan, but because the Greco-Roman Protestant churches don't teach it the way the Bible teaches it. The Muslims have concluded, ah, this doesn't make sense. If you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, starting verse 13, we see that the Apostle Paul here teaching that God planned to call the elect uh, from the beginning. 2 Thessalonians 
2, verse 13. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And as I said, if you're watching this and understanding this, God may be calling you now, and if you've not been uh, if you've not repented and been properly baptized, had hands laid on you, uh, again, you should study that booklet and then eventually a counsel with someone for this, for baptism. Belief in the truth, verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Romans chapter 11, starting verse 1. I say then, Romans 11, verse 1, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people for whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone the left. They seek my life. But what does the divine response say to them? I reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to grace. So only a remnant is supposed to be called now. Some have said when Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That didn't mean there was only be a little flock. Well, yes it did. And Paul confirms this with talking about a remnant in this age. In Zechariah 10, verse 6, I'll just read this. It says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside. I mentioned about God being God of love. God is also God of mercy. And people do not grasp how merciful God is. God does have a plan. Well, some say, no, no, Jesus came to make everything clear, to call everybody now. But if you go to Mark 4, We'll read something there, starting verse 33. In several different places, but I'm only going to read uh, this part here. It says that Jesus spoke in parables, so only some would understand. And in, we see this in Mark 4, 33 and 34. It says, in many such parables, he, Jesus spoke the word to them who were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to the disciples. Why? Because he wasn't calling all of them now. Let's go to John chapter 12. John 12, starting verse 37. But although he, that's Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So people think, oh, if I just see the right sign, I'll believe. Uh, no. And for people who want to see some signs, you can go to an article we have at the ccog.org website. Does the CCOG have uh, the signs of Acts 2, uh, 17 and 18? But people read those, and that, nah, that's, they don't count those either. The Pharisees sometimes find Jesus to do a different sign than he wanted to do, and it's like, no, this is what I do, and this is, this is it. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. But they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he's 
blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, in turn that I should heal them. Now I want to reread that last verse, verse 40, from the old King James. It says, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Not all are, allowed, are able to see in this age. It is not because God is a respecter of persons, because God is not a respecter of persons, nor does he have partiality. But he looked upon you. He looked upon your family. How you're going to be raised. How you're going to interact with things. How you actually did to determine whether or not you would be called in this age or you'd be called in the age to come. Yeah, I've read scriptures about God not having partiality. Uh, I won't re-read two of them, but one, i got three of them in front of me here, the two of them I've read. Ephesians 6, 9 says there's no partiality with Him. Since there is no partiality with God, there has to be a plan for those who are not able to see in this age. And that's what is pictured by the last great day. In Ephesians 4, 6 says there's one God, Father of all. That doesn't just mean for the called in this age. James 1, 17, you don't have to go there says every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now Jesus taught that human fathers know how to give their children good gifts in Matthew 7 verses 9 through 11. Will not God, the Father of all human beings, at least offer salvation to all his children? While referencing those called now who have the grace of God, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, Thank be to God for his indescribable gift. Is it only those who were called now to get, who would get this gift? I want to go to Romans 5, starting verse 15. And I'm reading this from the AFV, mainly because the other translations get the gender of the Holy Spirit wrong. And what astounds me about that, there was a well-respected Greek scholar who translated the New Testament. I won't mention which version. And he got it wrong. Yet he wrote out a very scholarly paper explaining why the Holy Spirit is not a he and you shouldn't be using those personal pronouns for the Holy Spirit. That he translated it wrong. But instead, uh, I'm going to read from a different translation. I mean, actually, I know this particular translator. I've, I've met him. I've talked to him. Anyway, Romans 5, starting verse 15. But should not the free gift be even as the offense was? For if by the transgression of one man many died, how much more does the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by the one man, Jesus Christ, abound unto many? And should not the free gift be like that which came by the one who had sinned? For on one hand judgment was made by one unto condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift is by one to whom the justification of many offenses. For by the offense of one man reigned by one, how much more shall those who receive the abundance of grace and gift of righteousness reign in life by the one Jesus Christ? So even so then even as the one transgression condemnation condemnation came unto all men, the same way by one act of repentance justification will come to all men. 
And I want to read the verse 18 from the Berean literal Bible as well. So then, just as through one trespass, it is under condemnation to all men, so also through one act of righteousness is justification of life to all men. Justification cannot come to all humans unless they're getting an opportunity. How? In Isaiah 9, 2, you don't have to go there. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land, the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And if you go to Isaiah 42, we'll see here also about those who worshipped idols. Isaiah 42, starting in verse 16. I will bring the blind by way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and, cro and crooked places straight. These things I'll do for them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say the molded images, you are my gods. Hear you deaf, look you blind that you may see. God has a plan to call pagans. That's what is idol worshipers. It's very clear. You don't have to go there, but Jeremiah 6.10 makes it clear that there are those who simply can't hear God's message. He wrote, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they can not hear. Well, they can't hear, they can't give heed. In Isaiah 60, verse 15, Isaiah was inspired to write, Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. The mass of humanity in history, in places like Asia and Africa, remote islands, the old western hemisphere, are going to get an opportunity. And yes, this would include people from like Siberia, India, China, whatever. God has a plan that's going to work. Now some think it's not fair that God calls some now and some later. But people have always complained about God's fairness. Let's go to Ezekiel 33, starting verse 25. It says, Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, o house of Israel, is not my way which is fair, and your, way, your ways which are not? And he go, I'm not going to go through all of that, but just wanted to make the point is that throughout history, people have challenged whether or not God's way is fair, and God says it is. Now let's go to Isaiah 45, starting verse 21. God is just. Isaiah 45, cutting in the middle, verse 21. There is no other God besides me, a just God and Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God. There is no other. Now God is a just Savior. He's fair, and he's got a plan that will, be, that will work best for all the ends of the earth. Going down a couple of verses to verse 24 of Isaiah 45. Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed 
against him. Against him. So people who are mad at God or haven't been believing God, they're actually going to come to God. People who are quite angry are going to come to God. And I mentioned this before, but in places such as uh, Matthew 13, verses 10 through 17, it says, you know, why do you speak in parables? And basically says, so because it's not time for them to hear. And at some point in time, it will be. Now, part of the reason what God's not calling everyone now, you can read about this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. Read something from the Apostle Paul here. This we see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God's chosen foolish things in this world to put to shame the wise, and God's chosen the weak things in the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring them to nothing, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's one of the reasons why God hasn't called everyone now. But another one, you know, God doesn't want people who are called now also, by the way, to think they're superior to everybody else. It's one of the reasons why that was recorded. But again, getting back to Lucifer who became Satan and his demons, they knew it all, but this still didn't go the right way. God came up, developed a plan that was going to work. I'm going to read from Romans 5, verses 10 through 11. It said, For if we are enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. But God is willing to have others reconciled with later. In Ezekiel 14.23, you don't have to go there, God makes clear that He does things for a reason. You shall know that I have done nothing without cause. Okay? God has a reason for everything He does. Sometimes people act like it's coincidental. But there's a reason for everything. Isaiah 49, verse 26 says, All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. But if they didn't have an opportunity for salvation, they won't think there could be his Savior, or her Savior. No, they're all going to know who the Savior is, because they're all going to have an opportunity for salvation. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. Offering salvation to all, either in this age or age to come, was always part of the plan. The last great day pictures that plan. Typically we spend time explaining why the last great day, last 100 years and all, and I'm not going to do that this, uh, today. Uh, again, I would urge people to read the free book that we have called Universal Offer of Salvation. And by the way, if you go to the website, we don't ask for your email address, we don't ask for a donation, there's no suggested donation, nothing like that. You just go and do, and you can read it. We, we, we don't follow up, you can read it. If you have any questions for us, you can ask us questions, but uh, don't think there's some kind of a trick involved here, because there's not. We just want to share the truth with you. In Ephesians 3, verse uh, 1, the Apostle Paul's writing that there's a mystery God's plan and grace that people don't understand. 
Ephesians 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. How that by the revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you've read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So yeah, there were things that people did not understand. In Isaiah 12, I'm going to read a few verses, starting verse 3. Isaiah makes it clear that he knew that the time of salvation was coming. He wrote, Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In, and in that day, you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry aloud, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Now I've mentioned rain before, and I mentioned that Jesus taught that on the last great day, Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Interestingly, the Jews have something correct about this, at least some of their writers do. They call the eighth day, which we call the last great day, again, they call it the Shemini Azarat. But of this, they, they call it the day of rain. We're talking about the latter rain. The sage Rabbi Abahus said, the day of rain is greater than the resurrection of the dead, because the resurrection of the dead benefits only the righteous, but the rain benefits the righteous and unrighteous. Now that's from the Talmud, and that's we wouldn't word it quite that way. The Bible talks about multiple resurrections. And why don't we go and see that in Revelation 20. Revelation chapter 20. Probably start with verse 4. I saw thrones and they sat on them. Judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God would not worship the beast or his image, not receive the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they were resurrected. These people were dead. They were resurrected. They were part of the first resurrection. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years was finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. They shall be priests of God and Christ will reign with them a thousand years. So we see that there are two resurrections mentioned here. I'm not going to go into the third one today. If you go down to verse 11, uh, this is when the, we see the second resurrection. Saw the great white throne with him, sat on him, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open, uh, etc. The Jewish writer in the Talmud, who was recording the Talmud, saying, okay, there's two days. There's the resurrection, and then there's a better time. Okay, well, the first resurrection is the time when those who are called in this age, who endured to the end and obeyed, will be resurrected. But then there'll be time everybody else will come. In the latter reign, if you will, that will be that time. And that's what the last great day pictures. It's amazing sometimes to me how the, 
some of the old Jewish writers got certain parts of this because some things were made a whole lot clearer by the New Testament, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And so sometimes they get it right. I say sometimes. So I've read a lot of the Talmud, and sometimes I don't think they get it right at all, so it's not even close. But this one, I, just, I did think this was, uh, was important. And the last scripture I want to read is from Psalm 67, verses 1 to 2. It says, And in these days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. The kingdom will, should not be left to other people, break into pieces, consume the kingdom. Oops, I'm sorry. That was Daniel 2.44. I'm thinking, why was I reading that for my last scripture? That's not what I meant it. That, well, anyway, you got to hear Daniel 2.44. The kingdom of God will last forever. Psalm 67, verse 1 and 2. Yes, I do misspeak from time to time. God, be merciful to us and bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known in the earth, your salvation among all nations. That was a prophecy, and that will come to pass. God's salvation is going to be known to all nations, and that's what the last great day pictures. God truly has a marvelous plan of salvation, better than just those who are called in the first resurrection, but to envelop all the world who will have an opportunity for salvation and nearly all of which will accept it. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.